got your Bibles this morning, we want to ask that you hold your Bibles up for just a moment. Would you do that? Hold your Bibles up. If you would say the name of Jesus, would you do it? Jesus. All right. Glad to have you today. Glad you have your Bibles. And uh, please take them and turn to Mark chapter 5 today. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Please stand together as we have a few verses to cover today that will be so important to us. And we want to get rolling as quickly as we can. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. The message is titled and simply, The Call. We're at the end of our rogue series. And the idea of the word rogue is that when an imperfect religion meets a perfect man, it calls him, sees him as rogue, as a rogue leader. Everything Jesus said and did was unexpected to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders of that day. Literally, he was turning their religious world upside down. But as he did so, he identified for us in this day and time the priorities of the kingdom of God. So as we read this morning, we want to see not only the life of one man, but we want to see what Jesus revealed about the church as a whole. Who are we to be? What are we to be focused on? What is the priority of our lives? Verse 27 says, after that he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Now I want you to know before I read the next verse that follow me was not simply a a temporary assignment or a temporary invitation. It's not follow me to get a cup of coffee, follow me down the road. It's not a, let's have a conversation this afternoon or a walk in the park. Follow me was understood by Levi or Matthew to be that, that perpetual call, come after me. Take your life and lay everything down and follow after me. For Levi, this was extraordinary, and we'll look at why in just a moment. Verse 28, and he left everything behind. And got up and began to follow him. Let those words sink in. He left everything behind and got up and began, perpetually began to follow him. Father, today, help us to know the call and to recognize it on every single one of our lives. Father, I ask you today to reveal to us the things we need to see individually, corporately. Help us to see the priorities that Jesus is establishing for the church today. In that conversation 2,000 years ago, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated if you would. Here's Jesus pressing on to what I call a threefold vision that he's been pressing towards ever since the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. First of all, Jesus has come to fully reveal God. He's come to explain God. Here is God coming in human form, fully God, fully man, born of a virgin, perfect in every way, tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. And what he's come to do is he's come to reveal the Father so that we can know God's character, so we can know God's mercy, God's compassion, God's justice, God's provision, everything we need to know about God. Jesus has come to explain and to reveal. I love John chapter 1, verse 18. It says, no man has seen God at any time but the only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, referring to Jesus, he has revealed him. He has explained him. Nobody can explain God except God. And Jesus came walking on planet Earth to explain God. That was the first thing he did. The second thing Jesus was doing was calling disciples, as we'll see here. We already have referred to Peter and James and John. Now we find a man named Levi, a man named Matthew, who's a tax collector, and Jesus is going to call Matthew, and 
One of the first ones that we read about is one of the most notorious followers of Jesus Christ, as we'll see. Thirdly, he is going to redeem mankind. He's going to reveal God, call disciples. He's going to redeem mankind. So even in this text that we're about to look at, Jesus is revealing the fact that he's heading to a cross, he's going to die, and he's going to pay the price for the sin of all mankind. But as we look at Levi for just a few moments, who would think to call a man like Levi to begin this set of disciples that follow Jesus? Only God. Now, there's a message behind that. The Bible says in Luke chapter 5 that Levi is a tax collector. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, Matthew says it this way. Jesus went on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said, follow me. And he got up and followed him. So we have Levi is the name given here in the book of Luke. Matthew, the name given by, uh, Matthew gave the name uh, of Matthew in that book. And we have this picture of Matthew or Levi, the tax collector, who Jesus calls. We're going to begin this message with Levi. We're going to end this message with Levi because of the incredibly interesting life this man lived. At the tax collector, you can only imagine how people viewed him in that day and time. We could talk about the IRS today, but it wouldn't be funny because tax deadlines next week is just not funny. But tax collectors were absolutely the most despised people on the planet in that day by their own culture. They had all the enforcement of the Roman military behind them. They could send the soldier anywhere at any time if someone did not pay up. Now, these tax collectors had the ability to misrepresent what was really owed. They could literally rob from someone all the funds that they wanted, back it up with the Roman Empire and the Roman army, so they were notorious in their reputation. The religious leaders said to eat with someone who was a tax collector was to contaminate the faith contaminate your religion by even being associated with them. They were the deplorables. They were the ones that no one wanted to be with. They were contaminated in every way in the views of the world. And yet Jesus came to Levi. And he said to Levi, get up and follow me. That Jesus would forgive a tax collector, much less make him an apostle, was unthinkable to the religious order of that day. That's why Jesus was seen as rogue. And yet here's the lesson we need to learn today. And that lesson is Jesus calls messed up people. Aren't you glad today that Jesus calls messed up people? And if you're not saying amen today, then you're not acknowledging the fact that you're messed up and he's calling you. <laughs> Jesus calls messed up people. The truth is none of us have it all together. The truth is none of us are perfect. None of us have even climbed a religious order to the degree of these Pharisees of that day. And they were missing the mark by incredible length. The reality is we all need Christ because we're all born in sin. David said, in iniquity, in sin, my mother conceived me. Not referencing how he was conceived, but that he was conceived and that he had human blood and that human blood was tainted through the years from Adam's sin. All of us, all of us are affected by the doctrine of the depravity of man. How many of you have children today? Would you raise your hand if you have children? How many of you also believe in the depravity of man? Raise your hand. That's the same. See, I rest my case. Those that have children know that the depravity of man is a real doctrine. I had some questions about that until my firstborn was born. And uh, she was a beautiful little baby girl. And she was perfect in every way until she manifested that depraved sinfulness that's in every person and dared disobey me at a very, very early age. At that moment, I realized there's something evil going on inside of her. 
as beautiful on the outside as she is, as precious as she is in my heart, she's got sin and selfishness running all through her life. Folks, all of us need to understand that. And Jesus came to a man named Levi who not only manifested that on the inside, but on the outside and with his friendships and relationships in every way, a contamination in the eyes of man. And Jesus came to Levi and said, follow me. And he did. What an amazing picture today. None of us are outside the grace of God. None of us are so far away that God cannot save us. And none of us are so far from God that God does not want us. Let me tell you today, it doesn't matter what you've done, how far away from God you are, how many things that you've messed up, how messed up you are right now, or even the plans that you have in your heart, no matter how wicked or evil they are, Jesus Christ came to demonstrate through Levi and others that he loves you and has a plan for your life and is reaching out to you today. And no matter how hopeless you think it is, it is not hopeless because the God of creation knows you and has the ability to save you. A few weeks ago, I was in my father's uh, city and hometown of uh, Phoenix, Arizona, spending some time with him. There were some friends that came in that had been involved in dad's ministry for a number of years, and we were talking about the most notorious people that dad had ministered to as a pastor. And one of those guys is named S.J. Booker. S.J. was a hell's angel who somehow moved to Oklahoma. I don't know how you get a Californian hell's angels in Oklahoma, but he got there. And he was the roughest dude that, that I'd ever known or heard about. I mean, he was a rough kind of guy. And he came to Christ, and his testimony was amazing. He gave his life to Christ, and, and just as uh, feverishly as he pursued evil, he now pursued God just as zealously with just as much enthusiasm and zeal. It was an amazing story that continues on to this day. It's amazing how God takes someone like that and pull, pulls them out of the mess and holds them up to show us, as it were, that God can change any life. If he can change S.J. Booker's life, he can change your life. If he can change Levi's, the tax collector's life, he can change your life. It begins with Levi. But as Jesus begins to talk, and we begin to see Luke's record of this conversation, we see Jesus putting some distinctions to the call that all of us have. I want you to notice what, the, what these distinctions are. First of all, there's a call to relate. A call to relate. The Bible says that in verse 29 that Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. Now this is sometime after the original statement. So as days have passed, Levi has gotten to know God by getting to know Jesus. And he begins to want his friends to know Christ. So what he does is he gives a big reception for him in his house. There's a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with him. Verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and the sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. And listen to this next statement. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know, part of what we talk about all the time on a regular basis is our, is our, our, our goal, our logo in our church, along with our mission statement that involves four words that spell out the acronym of REAL, R-E-A-L. And one of those words is RELATE. That's, for the first, that's the first for all of us that we, we relate well to God, that we learn to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul and all of our might because only by loving God and knowing God will we know God's mission for our lives and God's priority for our life. 
And at this very early point in Levi's life, I began to see some characteristics that he's learning to relate well with Jesus because he's also reaching out to others like him. The second part of relate is to relate well with others as well and engage them in knowing Christ. So here's a very early disciple who already gets it. He knows he needs to be forgiven. He knows he needs to be saved. But he also knows that he needs to reach out to others around him. He's relating well to the Father through Jesus. And now he's engaging those all around him. So he throws a party and he invites his seedy band of friends there. It's all he knows. But that's who's coming to this party. And Jesus is there. We need to have friends that are far from God. Do you have friends that are far from God? I hope that you do. Somehow we get in our minds that once we come to faith in Jesus that, that the only friends we can have from that moment on are just Christian friends. Although we need to be wise, let me tell you that having non-Christian friends or friends that are far from God does not contaminate the Holy Spirit inside of your life. The power of the Holy Spirit is enough to keep you secure, to keep you holy, to keep you walking with God even though you have a seedy band of friends on the side. Some of you have written names of people on the wall that are local, lost in love. That may be your seedy bands of friends. We don't write seedy bands of friends on the wall like that because they may come in weeks ahead, but they're local, lost, and loved. It's important to know people. It's important to have relationships with people and relate well with them. It's important for them to see the difference Christ has made in your life and for you to be able to reach out to them and bring them to know Christ and here's why, because Jesus defined with an amazing statement a kingdom priority when he said this, I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Jesus was clearly referring to those that were self-righteous, who saw themselves as righteous. I've not come to call the self-righteous. I've not come to call those that think they already have it together. I'm not, I've not come to call the religious people the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers who are making a big case about how righteous they really are. I'm coming to, to call people who know they need forgiveness, who know they need help, who know their religion is not enough, who've already given up on everything else and now they're looking for real hope. I've come to call those people. John MacArthur made this statement about what Jesus said. He said this statement expressed the unique and essential uniqueness of Christianity and concisely summarizes his mission. It sums up the glorious scheme of salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ came to save repentant sinners. It sums up the church's mission. The heart of all gospel ministry is calling sinners to repentance. The heart of all gospel ministries, the heart of every church ought to be calling Sinners to repentance because Jesus called Levi and Levi threw a party and Jesus was there and commended Levi for what he did. In fact, in Luke chapter 15, verse 7, in a series of parables about lost sheep, lost coins, and the lost son, Jesus makes this statement in verse 7. He said, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no Repentance. It's risky. Sometimes it's even risque. But you reach out to people who don't know Jesus. A friend of mine pastors a church in East Texas, and they have 
had a ministry for some time where some of the ladies of the church have reached out to an owner of a strip joint outside of town. Now this woman who heard about the love of Jesus Christ because these women went into this strip joint and shared Christ with them and fed them and, and helped encourage them to come out of this kind of life. This woman who owned the strip joint gave her life to Jesus and came to the pastor of the church and said, what do I do now with this business? And he said, I've got a good idea about what we can do about this business. She closed the business down. She began to minister to the needs of, a woman, of the women that she had formerly hired to do the dancing in the stage. And, and the whole thing has turned around. It's an incredible thing today. A strip joint no longer exists in that part of the city, in that building especially. And this woman has come to know Christ. But what if the ladies of that church had not reached out? What if they were in fear of contamination? What if they forgot the mission of Jesus? What if they forgot the priority of the kingdom? What if they forgot that the church is in existence to call sinners to repentance? You see, so many lives are at stake based on our understanding of the mission. You know, this really is a good moment to say to you, how far would you go to reach out to people on Easter week who are far from God? How far will you go? Will you get out of your comfort zone? Would you be willing to take the effort and energy to reach out to them and to lovingly call them to worship with you, to hear about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? We're going to have a great time on Easter Sunday morning. And I'm going to build a cross over on this side of the stage, and we're going to illustrate the empty cross, and we're going to illustrate the empty tomb. It's going to be an amazing message based on what Jesus Christ did 2,000 years ago. And in it is embedded the message of salvation and the opportunity for your friends or people that you know who are far from God, who are local, lost, and loved, or your seedy band of sinners that you may know. They, would, they will have an opportunity to come to Christ. Will we reach them? Will we, will we take it upon ourselves to do what Levi did in that day and time and invite them? And I assure you, God has room in the kingdom of heaven for those that are furthest from him right now. A couple of weeks ago, I talked to a former biker who was a hitman for a bike club who came to Christ. It was a, an amazing conversion. The story that he told was, was incredible. Big guy, at least as tall as I am, weighed about 300 plus pounds, he said, when he was in the bike club. He was actually the hitman of the bike club. This guy's got long hair down his back. He's got tattoos on both, both his arms. All of his exposed skin has tattoos all over him. And, and uh, he married... After he came to faith in Christ, he married a woman that described herself as a church girl. So this is quite an unusual thing. A biker that's fully tatted, long hair down the middle of his back, hit man, married a church girl. Now he's a pastor of a church in Maryland. It's quite an entertaining story, folks. It really is. Here's what he said. He said it was amazing how liberating the message of Christ was to me with all the stuff that I'd done. And all that I had to come out of. You know, when he came to Christ, do you think God was worried about the tattoos on his arms? Do you think God was worried about the damage he had done? Do you think God was worried about the seedy life he had lived? He was not worried about any of that. The Lord Jesus and all the angels in heaven were rejoicing over the fact that this one came home. Yeah. Yeah. Folks, the, the kingdom is made up of people like that. Now, Jesus is setting the priority of the kingdom, and there's first of all is the call to relate well to God and relate well to others so that we can help them come to know the same Savior that we worship. And if you invite people, if you reach out to people, if you 
Invest your life into other people, no matter who they are, how far they are from God, or how religious they are. God will use that in a huge way. Secondly, there's a call to celebrate. A call to celebrate. As we move on into the text, in verse 33, the Pharisees have more to say. They said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come, and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. Jesus is saying, not only do we relate well, but we celebrate well. The kingdom of God needs to be about a party. The kingdom of God needs to be about a celebration. And the reason is because the bridegroom is among us. Jesus is here. The Pharisees were frequent fasters, not because the Old Testament ordained it. The Old Testament pointed towards a fast on the Day of Atonement every year, but was not calling for fast all through the week. Now, fasting is a great and spiritual exercise. I practice fasting from time to time as the Lord leads me. But the Bible says that we're not to fast for the eyes of men, but we're to fast for God. The Pharisees had taken that idea of fasting, the idea of starving the flesh to feed the soul, removing oneself from the temporary uh, gratification of our hunger to hunger more for God instead. They'd taken that idea away from us and begun to fast every Monday, every Thursday so that everyone could see them in their worst clothing, sackcloth, throwing ash upon themselves so that they would be able to show a picture of piety and self-righteousness. They're wondering why the disciples of Jesus don't do that. The disciples of John fast, they said. The Pharisees fast. Why don't your people fast? And Jesus' response is that when the bridegroom is among you, it's a time to feast and not to fast. When the bridegroom is among you, it's a time to rejoice and not mourn. When the bridegroom is there, it's a time to dance and not be still. It's a time to celebrate. I enjoy going to weddings from time to time, and I've never been to a wedding where there wasn't a lot of celebrating. There's a celebration of the bride who's been waiting for the groom and the celebration of the groom who's been waiting for the bride. There's a celebration of the parents who presumably no longer have them on their payroll anymore. <laughs> There's a celebration of the bridesmaids and the groomsmen who are excited for their friends. There, there's a celebration of everybody that's there that's rejoicing in a brand new couple and a brand new family. I've been to all kinds of weddings. I've been to church weddings where people are smiling inside the building. I've been to Muslim weddings where we were the only non-Muslims there, and they know how to celebrate weddings too. They're all celebrating. I've never been to a wedding where there wasn't a lot of celebrating. Two weeks ago, I went to a cowboy wedding. First time I've ever been to a cowboy wedding. They had it in the barn. It was my nephew's fiance who was planning the wedding. They got married. I was doing the ceremony. I said, I've got a tuxedo. I've got a suit. What do you want me to wear? She said, have you got any boots? I said, yes. She goes, do you have any jeans? Yes. Do you have a white shirt? Yes. She said, wear boots and jeans and white shirt. I said, I can handle that. <laughs> she said, if you have a six shooter, you can wear it in your holster on your side even. <laughs> it's a cowboy wedding. We're meeting in a barn. And we're going to have a a dance afterwards. 
Man, we had a great time. There wasn't anybody frowning. There wasn't anybody scowling. Nobody was unhappy. Everybody was happy because we were celebrating, and the bride and the groom had a phenomenal time. We had a dance after, and this Baptist preacher danced with his wife. I'm sorry, but if you're really dying in the world Baptist, you just need to get over it. But, but here's the deal. If you watched me dance, you would not get over it because it was really hideous. It was really bad. We were celebrating. Everybody celebrates at a wedding. Jesus says, have you not been to a wedding? Have you not seen the celebration? Do you not know who is standing in front of you? If you're not celebrating the kingdom, it means you don't know who's in front of you. Therefore, we're called to celebrate because we have this amazing relationship with none other than Jesus Christ, who is the bridegroom of the church, called to celebrate called to rejoice, called to be excited about what Jesus Christ is doing through the gospel itself. We're called to relate, called to celebrate, we're called to create. Jesus goes on and says this to them. In verse 36, he was telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he'll tear both the new and the piece from the old, will not match the old. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put in fresh wineskin. He was saying this in reference to the gospel needing to come into their lives and changing what they did outwardly. And then he says in verse 39, and no one after drinking old wine wishes for the new, for he says the old is good enough a reference to the Pharisees who say, I'm tasting this and I'm not, I'm not interested. Here's the point. The new wine of Jesus just won't fit the old religious forms. I want you to look at me for just a moment because I think I'm going to speak personally to some of you in the room today and I think it's very important that you see something today. Ritual can destroy us personally. I remember having a conversation with a woman who was a neighbor in our former city where we live in Tennessee and her kids were playing with my kids at the time and they had been invited to an event at our church and she said, I don't mind my kids knowing about Jesus, but we'll never leave the Catholic Church. And I said, well, that's not my goal to get you to leave the Catholic Church. But she said, here's why we'll never leave the Catholic Church. The ritual that we go through, that we go through all the time, even though I don't understand it, feels so good. And the candles we light, the way we do uh, the services, the, even the Latin that the priests speak, it just, it just wraps me up like a cocoon. It holds me tight. It just feels so good. And I said, well, I don't know what you're feeling, but I know this. If you don't get through all that ritual to get to Christ, you can't have salvation. Some of us are so used to ritual. We're so used to the feel that we've never met the real Savior. We've got the feeling of religion. The Pharisees were not far from that. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about right there. If you're not willing to let the power of Jesus Christ change everything you do, then, then I don't believe you've met Jesus Christ. Our security is not in our religious forms. Our security is in the person of Jesus Christ. But ritual can also destroy us corporately. The old pharisaical legalism cannot hold the power of the gospel is what Jesus was saying. The focus in that day was Judaism. The principle remains. We must take the new wine of the gospel and not harness it with our old ways but create new ways to reach people like a party for a seedy band of friends, or like celebrating instead of fasting when Jesus is around. 
The heart of it all is that ritual can destroy us. Instead, we need to let the gospel and its power destroy our ritual and create for us a heart for others. The common denominator between these three statements that Jesus has made is that it's about what we value. The success of our religion or the sinner who comes to repentance. Friends, if we value our religion over a sinner who comes to repentance, we've missed the mark of Jesus' call to the kingdom. Sometimes when I'm in the airport, I watch people come back from long trips, usually in the international terminal. You see that a lot. And so I've been in that terminal waiting for someone to come back and see a lot of others come back before mine gets back. I remember recently watching a soldier when those doors opened on that international terminal make his way up that little ramp. It was very obvious who was waiting for him there because his family was back there with signs and wife and kids were jumping up and down. And dad was coming back from being in deployment for however long. And he was just as glad to see them as they were to see him. Man, there was this amazing reunion that took place right there on that ramp. It didn't matter that others were trying to get around them. Nobody minded that they were holding all the traffic up, so to speak. Nobody minded at all because everybody else was into this thing at the same time. There were even tears coming down the eyes of other people who were waiting for friends that had been gone maybe a week or two, but this soldier has probably been gone for months, maybe even years. And the grand reunion that takes place moves from war to what branch of the service, all that stuff is out the window. Uh, uh, the religious overtones that could have been talked about at that moment, all that's gone. The only thing that matters is that that dad is coming home to that family. That's the only thing that matters. Somebody has come home, finally. Jesus is saying the same thing to all these religious leaders. It doesn't matter about your religion. It doesn't matter about all that. All that matters is that someone has come home and found the Father. That's all that matters. I've not come to call the righteous, but I've called, come to call sinners to repentance. Can I get back to Levi before I conclude? Thank you. Jesus came to Levi and said, follow me. And Levi got up and left everything and began to follow Jesus. Let me ask you, have you left ritual behind? Have you left religion behind? Have you recognized the value of the bridegroom in your presence? Have you recognized that if you come and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, nothing else really matters in comparison to that? We can deal with all the collateral. We can figure out everything else on the other side. We can even figure out what to do with your religion. But until you come and recognize that Jesus is here to call you to himself, to give your life to him, to come and give everything to him, then you're missing it. Commentators tell us that when a tax collector came out of the system, he would never get back in. He left his way of life. He left his prosperity. He left a trail of collateral damage that he could never undo himself. But he was willing to leave everything just to come to Jesus. I wonder today if you're willing to do that same thing. The call on his life was one of salvation. And he never stopped following Jesus. I want you to bow your head for just a moment and close your eyes as I close this message today.
I'm going to ask our counselors to come to the front and ask them to stand facing you. I want you to see that there are people here that will pray with you, talk with you. But I also want you not to get away from this guy named Levi, otherwise known as Matthew. If you read the Gospel of Matthew, you'll read what Levi wrote about Jesus. You'll read what Levi, under his new name, Matthew, wrote about Jesus. That's a phenomenal account of someone that sold out to Christ. In just a few moments, I'm gonna ask that you stand, and when we stand, I'll just stand here for just a few moments before I pray and invite you to respond. Today, if you wanna put your faith and trust in Christ, I wanna encourage you to come and take the hand of one of the individuals standing at the front. And just say, hey, pray with me, because I have a decision I need to make. I need to put my trust in Christ. I need to make sure that I've done that. And I wanna make sure I have not in any way failed to do that. We're going to give you time to do that today. Would you stand very quietly and just remain where you are right now? Just stand and remain for just a moment. Just a moment, I'm going to pray. But I don't want you to make your way to the exit yet. I want you to remain where you are. And in the silence of our moment, with heads bowed, eyes closed, I'm going to ask that you make your way out right now. If you want to pray with someone, if you want to talk to someone about the story of Levi, how how it impacts you, how it touches you, how it speaks to you, I want you to come right now. From wherever you are, from the back, from the center, even if you're in the middle of a row and you need to make way back, you're a young person, a teenager, you're an adult, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter how long you've been in church. But if God today is speaking to you in any way through the life of...